Wellicardia, Shaw, Jerry Adams, Arish, Ogus Morris Grata, Sulagumsa, Gowil Shibsha, Gumoy, Tamisha, Gohuntak, or Fat. I'm going to read a wee poem, or a bit of a wee poem, by Shimasini. It's called Up the Shore. The lock will claim a victim every year. It has virtue that hardens wood to stone. There is a town sunk beneath the water. It is the scar left by the Isle of Man. A tomb bridge where it sluices towards the sea. They've set new gates and tanks against the flow. From time to time they break the eel's journey and lift 500 stones in one go. But up the shore in Antrim and Tyrone, there's a sense of fair play in the game. The fishermen confront them one by one and sail miles out and never learn to swim. We'd be quicker going down, they say. And when you argue there are no storms here, that one hour floating sure would land them safely. The lock will claim a victim every year. Seamus Heaney's poem, published in 1969, captures much of what makes Loch Ness unique. It has long been a place of myth and fable, where the palace of Tuhan the Danon is supposed to lie beneath its waves. It's said that Loch Ness was created by the giant Finn McCool, who scooped out a huge chunk of earth and threw it after a Scottish giant. He missed and thus created the Isle of Man. Our old friend Richard believes that the loch was created four million years ago as a result of massive tectonic events. People have lived and worked around the shores of Loch Ness for thousands of years. This is evident in the huge numbers of artifacts and ruins. Stone axes have been found at Tomb and Shane's Castle. Neolithic pottery has been found at New Ferry, north of Tomb. In the 9th century, the loch was a base for a Viking fleet as part of their efforts to occupy Ireland. Following the English invasion of our shores, Loch Ney witnessed many battles. It played a strategically important role in the English defeat of the O'Neill and O'Donnell clans in the late 16th century and in the subsequent plantation of Ulster. The loch is the largest freshwater lake in Ireland. It is home to many rare plants, waterfowl and fish. It is bordered by five counties, Antrim Down, Armagh, Tyrone and Derry. For millions of years it has been at the heart of the local economy, a transport hub before roads and a major source of fishing that has provided a living for generations who have lived around its almost 400 square kilometres. It is a significant cultural and historic site, and in more recent years a place for water sports and relaxations for tens of thousands. It also provides 40% of the fresh water per citizens living in the north. Today, my friends, all of that is under threat. Recent satellite images have shown the extent to which a toxic blue-green algae have invested the loch. Cyanobacteria is a danger to animals 
and humans. According to the Loch Ness Partnership, climate change and the increased water temperatures of the loch have created the conditions for this algae to thrive. In addition, millions of tons of sand have been dredged from the floor of the loch for building projects here and in Britain. In an article by Tommy Green in the detail last December, he reported that around 30% of the North construction sand comes from Loch Ness. Prior to 2021, when extraction was unregulated, it's estimated that at least 1.1 million to 1.8 million tonnes was being dredged from the loch every year. The Loch Ness Fishermen's Cooperative Society warned last year that sand extraction was destroying habitat areas on the floor of the loch and that this was reducing the number of fish. The impact of the climate crisis, the presence of toxic algae, the incidence of raw sewage, the dredging of the loch shore and the destruction of that critical underwater environment mean the loch is now facing an ecological disaster. There is mounting concern that none of the government departments is prepared or appear willing to take the steps necessary to protect this hugely important community and environmental asset. Last week, First Minister designated Michelle O'Neill, Francie Malloy MP, Declan Kearney MLA and Philip McGuigan MLA met with the Loch Ness Partnership. Later, Declan Kearney led a political and community delegation, including Philip McGuigan, with locally based councillors, fishermen, anglers and the Loch Ness Partnership to meet senior officials of the Northern Ireland Environmental Agency and Inland Fisheries. The message is clear. As Mid-Ulster MP Francie Malloy said, the situation is untenable. The loch needs to be brought into public ownership and managed by a community partnership. This must include the bed of the loch, which is currently owned by an absentee British Earl who receives royalty payments for every tonne of sand extracted from the bed of the loch. There's also an urgent need for a comprehensive and coordinated action plan to tackle the toxic algae. A multi-agency and interdepartmental task force is a priority. Public ownership will facilitate a clear management structure to provide immediate and long-term plans to keep the loch safe and sustainable for future generations. So it's clear what the solution is, and it's clear that the loch Loch Ness can be saved. But in this day and age to have an absentee Earl from England receiving royalty payments is just not acceptable. And there is a need, as many people are now saying, for the loch to be brought into public ownership and managed by a partnership of local interest and local people. When I was a young lad, a gang of us from Ballamurphy, led by Joe McGee, used to walk to Loch Ness and spend the day there. Decades later in Long Case, some of us used to feast on Loch Ness eels sent to us in the internment cages by the bucketful. The story of Loch Ness is an integral part of the story and history and environment of the island of Ireland. The ecological crisis it currently faces arises from the actions of human beings.
It is our responsibility to change that. We know how to do it. Let's get it done. On another issue, uh, this is one of those anniversaries and many of my generation will remember the military coup in Chile in September 1973 that overthrew the socialist president of Chile, Salvador Allende. The images of the bombing of the presidential palace of a armed and courageous Allende defending the building and the quickly emerging reports of brutality by the Chilean military horrified many people around the world. The coup was led by General Augusto Pinochet in collusion with the CIA. In the years that followed, Chile became a byword in summary executions, torture and repression. Almost 20 years later, when the regime fell, a truth commission revealed that 40,000 people had been tortured, 200,000 had been forced to flee the country, and at least 3,000 were killed. The British government, led by Edward Heath, strongly supported the junta. Foreign Secretary Alec Douglas Hume wrote, For British interests, there's no doubt that Chile, under the junta, is a better prospect, and the sky-high price of copper, important to us all, should fall as Chilean production is restored. One-third of Britain's copper imports came from Chile. Landy's nationalisation of the copper industry in July 1971 had been condemned by the United States government and the British government. The Labour government that followed in Britain, that followed Heath, imposed sanctions on Chile, but during Margaret Thatcher's tenure as Prime Minister, she restored diplomatic relations, authorised visits by British ministers to Chile and lifted the arms embargo. Hundreds of members of the Chilean armed forces were trained by the British and in September 1982 the Thatcher government refused to support a motion at the UN condemning Pinochet's human rights abuses. British political and economic interest once again trumped human rights and international law. In October 1998, Pinochet was uh, arrested in London and Margaret Thatcher campaigned hard to secure his release and he was returned back home in March 2000. By their friends, we will know them. And finally, this column, this podcast, had a, a great day out in Derry last Sunday at the Chieftain's Walk organised by the Martin McGuinness Peace Foundation and Martin's family led by his wife, Bernie. There was a similar event in New York. Well done to all involved. It was great to meet many of Martin's old friends and his family and to walk the ground he trod on many, many times. Despite the rain, there was a great turnout. So, Shane Aharja, Shane Mamejeration Shocked and Shaw. So, Tor Ira. Gunyuri and Ta Levsha Gulyar.